a pie made with pigeon, Moroccan spices, and the famous souk mama. This week, we're in Marrakesh, Morocco. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we visit a different culinary hotspot and explore its cuisine, as well as cool things to do there. And this week, we're on the road to Marrakesh, a place known for slow cooking in tangines, flavorful spices, and mint tea. But first, let me remind you to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink wherever you get podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, Destination Eat Drink is there. Plus, every episode is archived for free at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on the podcast tab. Amanda Mutaki grew up in northern Wisconsin, but she and her Moroccan husband moved to Marrakesh seven years ago with their children and started Marrakesh Food Tours, a company that offers unique tours of the cuisine of Marrakesh and the villages outside the city. I was curious about this fascinating part of the world and was happy when Amanda agreed to be on the show. If anyone knows the food of Morocco and where to find the most interesting spots, it's Amanda. And I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Amanda, you are originally from northern Wisconsin. How did you wind up in Marrakesh, Morocco? Well, it couldn't really be further from um, from where I grew up, that's for sure. When I was 19, I came to Mar- Marrakesh and Morocco in general on vacation. Um, and on that trip, I happened to meet the man that's now my husband, very happenstance way. And we lived in the U.S. for nine years and decided we wanted to come back to Marrakesh when our two oldest children were six and eight so that they would learn Arabic. And here we are seven years later, we just decided never to leave, I guess. <laughs> so it sounds like you have a cute meat story. Do you want to share that? Oh, I can. I'll, I'll try to give the abbreviated version. So we were on vacation, my dad, my younger sister and her best friend. And she, my sister met a man in the souk who spoke English and was not very common in Morocco at that time. Um, and she ended up telling him where we were staying and asked him to come to our Riyadh that night to take us out for dinner because we were kind of sick of tagine at this point, which is a very typical meal in Morocco. And he showed up unbeknownst to my my father and I. And uh, she again, slightly, uh, slyly asked him to call one of his friends to keep her friend company again without us knowing. And about 15 minutes after this, this happened, I felt someone walking next to me and I turned to tell what I assumed was a man. Um, to please leave me alone. Um, and lo and behold, I looked and the first thing I thought was, you're going to marry this guy. Okay. <laughs> and then here we are. And now you're back in uh, Marrakesh, Morocco, and you have a company, Marrakesh Food Tours. You take mm-hmm. people on uh, day trips outside the city as well as in Marrakesh itself. Tell mm-hmm. us what people can expect on one of your Marrakesh Food Tours. 
Sure. So the idea behind this really stemmed from my tagine eating experience the first time we came to Morocco and um, just a realization that if you only speak English, it was really difficult to eat authentic, real Moroccan food because Moroccan people don't go out to eat Moroccan food typically. So food that you'll find in restaurants here is sometimes not so great or is very limited in, um, in what's on menus. And so I just saw that I, I felt really bad people were leaving and having not had this good food experience because I knew it could be good for them. Um, but I didn't know how to bridge that gap because people would ask me where to go, where to go. And it's just really hard to give directions because places don't have names, streets don't have names necessarily. Um, so I said, well, to my husband, what if we just took people to eat in these places? Um, so our rule of thumb is if my American mom would not go in or wouldn't be comfortable or wouldn't be able to order, but his Moroccan mom would feel comfortable and feel like the food was quality Moroccan food, then that's a good place for our tour. Then bang, we found yeah. the perfect place. Exactly, exactly. And we tried to keep our groups really small. So, you know, unless it was a group that was all together and requested uh, requested it, we try to keep our groups at eight people maximum. So it always feels like you're going out with a friend for dinner instead of, a, you know, a big group following an umbrella. You're, you're looking for something specific, a place where your mom might not feel comfortable, but your mother-in-law would. What other criteria would you look for in the perfect spot to take a uh, tourist? Sure. Another kind of unspoken rule I have is I try to avoid all tagines <laughs> because I feel like um, I want to show people the variety of Moroccan food and to give them dishes that they wouldn't know to ask for or know what they were necessarily without having had some guidance. And most of the time, people are a bit tagined out by the time um, by the time they come on our tour. Just in case folks don't know, explain what yeah. the tagine is. Yeah, sorry. Um, so tagine is kind of you know lots of people know about couscous, but tagine is kind of the the food of of Morocco, and it's basically a type of stew, more or less, with some vegetables, meat, spices. It's it's often slow cooked either in a in a a pot that looks like a triangle. Um, or nowadays, lots of people do it in a pressure cooker too. Um, but it was the traditional way of cooking. And, and there's way more than one tagine, like there's a bunch of varieties. So it refers to that type of cooking and to the vessel that food is cooked in, but the contents inside the tagine can vary greatly. I have a tagine at home and I love using it because that uh, uh, cast iron holds in the heat so well. But um, I guess you know, people get tired of having tagine day after day after day. What are some yeah. of the other dishes that we could expect if we're not going to have tagine? Sure. So depending on which tour it is, we have a little variety of what we offer. But, um, you know, we like to to surprise people, too. So one of the dishes um, that's iconic for Marrakesh is called tangia, which is not tagine. Um, and it's cooked, slow cooked overnight in a furnace in, in um, the coals of a furnace. Um, and it's basically lamb with uh, preserved lemons and garlic and olive oil and saffron. Um, and it's cooked until the meat is really, really tender and eaten with bread. So we always try to give people that because it's like our dish from Marrakesh. You won't really find it outside of here. Um, or there's also a type of uh, lamb also that's, I guess you'd say barbecue would be the word you'd use, even though it's not exactly that, but it's slow. It's cooked in an oven, like in a big giant clay oven, an entire 
sheep, um, and then the meat is eaten with salt and cumin on it. Uh, you might also have uh, grilled sardine meatball sandwiches, which was the one thing on the tour that I was the most iffy about. And my husband was the one that's like, we are having these. Um, so I let him, I said, okay, we can see what the people think. Um, and it turns out like a lot of times it's one of people's favorite things that they have because I think that's kind of a bit unexpected because it doesn't really taste like, like sardines, how you expect them to taste. Marrakesh is well inland, but you're getting sardines from the coast of from Morocco? From the coast. Okay. Yep. So the coast is about two, a little over two hours away. Um, but sardines is one of Morocco's biggest um, industries, actually. Uh, so it's really common to get fresh sardines in pretty much most of the country any day of the week. I love eggplant and smoked eggplant is one of my favorites. Can you talk about a dish called Zalouk? And if I'm not pronouncing that properly, please correct me. No, you're fine. So zalouk is a type of salad and Moroccan cuisine uh, has a lot of different salads, but they're not typically what we think of in the West as a salad. Um, so they're not fresh. They're not like fresh greens or raw vegetables. They're cooked. Um, and zalouk is one of those. So it's like a slow cooked eggplant with um, tomatoes and cumin and garlic. And sometimes depending on who's making it, they might add some vinegar or lemon juice. Um, and, it, and it really, it ends up almost more like a dip um, than what you would think of as a salad and always eaten with bread. Very delicious. It's also pretty nice on hamburgers, I think. <laughs> okay. And are hamburgers <laughs> popular in Marrakesh? Yeah, I, it's probably, I mean, not McDonald's sense of hamburgers, but it's normal to have, it's called Kesta here. Uh, so it's normal to go and have that grilled, um, you know, like on the weekend, you might do it in like small patties and eat, eat the little patties with, uh, you know, some salads and some cumin and some extra salt on them and some uh, grilled onions and tomatoes. I read about a dish called Bissara. What can you tell me about this dish, Amanda? Typically, this is eaten in the winter months. And in the north of Morocco, it's really popular. Um, we have it here, too, further south. But uh, it's a breakfast food. It's like a, a pulse. So it's made with dried fava beans, always dried fava beans. Can't make it with fresh fava beans um, that are re, re, kind of rehydrated with some olive oil, cumin, and salt, cooked till they're really, really soft, and then blended to a puree. And then, you know, you just, like, go real heavy on the olive oil on top with some cumin and sometimes some hot pepper um, if you if you like it a little bit spicier. Um, it's one of my favorite things in the winter. It's so good. I love fava beans when I'm in Italy, especially in mm. the spring. This sounds like something that would be right up my alley. Oh, I think you'd love it. If you like fava beans, you like, I didn't even know, I don't think I'd even eaten a fava bean before I had this, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, I love fava beans. And my mom was like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> this Northern Wisconsin girl grew up on cheese curds, right? Exactly. Exactly. And here I'm eating like fava beans and roasted sheep heads and, you know, all this random things now. So. <laughs> What about uh, what about this thing called patilla? Uh, is it pastilla? Ah, uh, maybe. Like the baked, like a pie? Is yes, like yes, a pie yes. Okay, so pastilla is a type of chicken pie, and all of the ingredients, when you list them, sound like it should not work. It's made with like a type of phyllo dough. It's, it's our version of phyllo dough that's a little bit thicker than what you would have in like Turkey or um, Greece. It's a little bit thicker. Um, and the inside is chicken that's cooked with um, onions and some spices and then shredded and all of the bones, um, you know, are gone away. And then the 
the, the liquid and the onions that are left from cooking the chicken, uh, you really slowly cook eggs into it. So it doesn't end up like scrambled eggs, but more like a silky kind of um, sauce almost, like but a thicker sauce. So then this is put inside of that the dough into like a pie, like a pie shape, a round shape with a layer of the chicken and a layer of the onions and then ground almonds and powdered sugar. <laughs> uh, I know it doesn't, it shouldn't work, right? Like it sounds like, no, it's disgusting. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's all wrapped up um, and put into the oven and uh, you know, everything inside is already cooked, but like to cook the outside and just kind of heat up everything. Um, and then it's, it's cut and served. So it's, it was a very, uh, fancy dish, I guess you'd say like it, it didn't really enter the mainstream kitchens in Morocco until, you know, the 20th century, even maybe closer to the mid 20th century. Um, it was just the ingredients were so expensive. And traditionally, it was made with pigeon, not chicken. So you can still find it sometimes with pigeon. I prefer the chicken myself. Um, and then there's different variations. There's some like with seafood. And now you're seeing some like vegetarian versions and things like that. But it is really delicious. So if you get a chance to do it, and it's someplace that's a good quality, you know, restaurants, probably not something I'd buy off the street necessarily, but in a in a decent restaurant, it's something that uh, that I would definitely try if I had the chance. Amanda, you mentioned a vegetarian version of this dish. And that brings up mm -hmm. the question, what's it like for vegetarians who are coming to Marrakesh? So I think that things have changed a lot. People are at least starting to understand what it means to be vegetarian um, because very few people in Morocco would choose this, but you're seeing more and more Moroccans that are choosing to be vegetarian. Um, but on typical restaurant menus, they do want to put a lot of meat heavy dishes because there's still a conception that that's what tourists want. And I see it's like slowly changing and there's slowly starting to be an acceptance and an understanding of what that means. Um, so it can be a little bit of a challenge and it can even get a bit repetitive. But I think if you do a little bit of legwork ahead of time and just kind of get to know what the cuisine is and what different options are available, if you ask for specific things or um, give people a little bit you know, that you know a little bit, so you give them a little bit, they can help point you in the right direction. Because I think it's kind of, you've kind of got two different sides here. You've On one side, when I think of Moroccan Marrakesh food, I think of couscous and vegetables. But then on the other hand, I also think often about stewed meats and lamb and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, the traditional cuisine of Morocco, meat is a, a side dish, right? Like even if you had a, if you had a tagine, there might be meat in it, but it wouldn't be like the focus of the dish necessarily. It would be like something that was there and you would always eat the meat last. Like if you were in a family setting, like they would always go for the meat last, eat everything else, meat last. Um, because the, the cuisine was very heavily based on, um, on vegetables and grains because that's what was cheapest. Uh, but, you know, as times change and as, as tourism comes in and, and there's more people looking for other things, I think that they've tried to overcompensate in some ways because they feel like they're being stingy if they only offer the vegetables or that they'll be seen that way. Um, yeah, so it's a bit of a paradox. They're going through a bit of a, a cultural shift when it comes to this. Marrakesh is famous for their food stalls. What should we look for to find a good food stall versus a poor food stall or a tourist food stall? So they're all tourist food stalls. I'll just say that to okay. begin with. <laughs> so just know if you're going to go eat in them, like, yes, it's like it's just for the ambience. You're not going to necessarily have fantastic food. 
Um, I would avoid couscous and tagine. Um, go for things that are grilled um, because that's just, you know, going to be cooked fresh and have like a, a decent turnover rate, whereas the tagine or the couscous is going to have sat there for a while. And then, you know, really like they're all a bit of a dime a dozen. So you can't really go too wrong. So as long as you find something, pay attention to the menu, what the price on the menu is, and, and that the final bill matches up with the price on the menu. Um, the only food style that I would say that is not kind of the same as everything else is number 14. And that's because they do fried seafood, which again, sounds like it shouldn't work because we're not on the ocean, but they are reputable and legitimate and you'll find loads of Moroccans um, either picking up stuff there to take home or eating there. So that's always a good sign. There you have it. Stall number 14 from Amanda Mutaki. We're talking to Amanda from Marrakesh Food Tours. Um, let's talk about some of your actual tours, Amanda. You have something called the Evening Street Food Tour, and you visit someone called the, uh, the Souk Mama. Uh, who is the Souk Mama? What does that mean? We, we, try to, we always go to locals. It's really important to us that we support the locals and the local economy. Um, and so this is a lady who has a sort of hidden little, I hate to call it a restaurant because it's not really a restaurant. Um, oh, I you know, like you, it already. Yeah. It's, it's hidden away back in a little corner market. That's, a, you know, it's a secondhand market actually for Moroccan that Moroccans go and use. Um, and it's a shop that her mother inherited when her father passed away. Um, and the mom needed to have something to generate income and she couldn't do the job that the dad was doing previously. And so she started cooking, um, bread, like bread and things in the morning for breakfast and whatnot. And then it kind of has evolved over time. So now it's the mom and her daughters who are now adults with their own children, um, who cook, but they don't do food for tourists, really. The food is for um, uh, mostly guys that work in the souk. So they come and they pick up a little tagine and they take it back to their stall and, you know, share with the other guys that are working in the shop. So we think of her like the mama of, of everyone. <laughs> so the souk is a, a a place where there's a lot of shops. What What is the souk itself? Yeah. Sorry, I should have explained. So the souk is um, in Marrakesh, you'll see in the old area, it's a big labyrinth of lots and lots of streets. And it's kind of divided up by industry. So you'll have an area that's mostly woodworkers and an area that's mostly um, metalsmiths or weavers or pottery, you know, all kinds of different traditional kind of handicrafts and whatnot. And the souk refers to that entire area, that entire shopping area. And then you also have homes and other businesses that are mixed in there. You know, you might have an electronic shop and you might have some guy that's selling yarn and you might have, you know, any number of any and everything mixed in there um, with food, restaurants, corner shops, a little bit of everything. You also do day trips outside of Marrakesh. What are some of the places that people would visit if you took them outside of Marrakesh and what could you expect to find there? So we um, we partnered with a family, one of our most popular day trips is called the Ijukak um, Valley trip. And the Ijukak Valley is about an hour and a half um, outside of Marrakesh. It's not that far distance wise, but when you start driving in the mountains, because Marrakesh is bordered by the High Atlas Mountains, um, time, travel time just increases exponentially because of our mountain roads. Um, so this is kind of a, a somewhat remote valley. Um, and so people go out there and really get a sense of what rural life 
um, is like in in Morocco. And there's a family there that makes traditional breakfast. The mom cooks bread over like a clay oven with wood. Like it's crazy. It's the best bread you'll ever eat. But the amount of work, it's just Oh, crazy. God bless these women. So you get to, you have breakfast with them and then you get to go on a hike or a mule ride through the vets, through the village. So you can kind of see what is a, what does a village look like? And, you know, what does life kind of look like there? Um, and then we go to the Tin Mall Mosque, which is a, I think it's 11th century mosque. Don't I'm, I'm not exactly sure which century it is, but it's really, really old. Um, and it's, it's in ruins more or less now. It's not an operating mosque, but it's gorgeous. Like it's just amazing this architecture and you're in such a remote area and you just think like, wow, the, the time and effort and craftsmanship that went into creating this thing like a thousand years ago is just insane. Um, and then from there, depending on the day of the week, we built, visit another little village where they actually make tagine pots by hand. Um, so not the food in them, but the actual pots themselves oh, out of wow. clay. Yeah. So that's really fun because you get to, my kids love going because they get to like get in there and pretend they're making tagines too. <laughs> um, and then we go back and have lunch with the family. So we have a late lunch, like three, four, which is normal lunchtime in Morocco, but um, have a late lunch and enjoy with everything that they cook. They either like raise, harvest or like gather like prime, like 90% of what they, what they eat is either, yeah, um, raised, gathered or harvested from, from their land. Um, and what kind and of stuff have, would they, would they, uh, would they gather? Oh, sure. Like it could be berries or all kinds of different fruit trees like plums or prunes, olives, um, uh, what else? Lemons, oranges, apples, walnuts, um, yeah, all, all those sorts of things. Yeah, fruit and nut trees. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the sound of this tour, Amanda. <laughs> Makes me want to <laughs> hop on a plane today. You mentioned fruit trees. And so this brings up the topic of citrus because orange production is pretty popular in Morocco and orange juice is very popular. What are some of the other beverages that we could expect to drink when we're in Marrakesh? Oranges are huge here. Um, the other major drink is mint tea. Of course, this is something that you will drink. <laughs> I don't know. My husband probably drinks three or four pots of it a day. Um, so it's really like very common. You'll, you know, be offered it with every meal, whether it's, you know, 120 degrees outside or it's 20 degrees. Um, so they drink lots of that. And it's not just mint. So that's something that if you come, know that it's green tea or black tea, usually green tea though, mixed with mint and a lot of sugar. <laughs> so very sweet. It's very sweet. So Texans yeah. would feel right at home uh, having yes. some mint tea because they love yeah, their sweet tea. Exactly. It's like sweet tea, but hot. Okay. And you have this with every meal? They would, yeah. I mean, it's really typical to, to have it, you know, with breakfast, with lunch, uh, maybe not with dinner as, as they usually eat dinner around like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So they might cut off the caffeine consumption by then. Um, but okay. yeah, several times a day and in between meals. When you get a cup of this, would there be fresh mint leaves in the cup or is the mint steeped in the pot separately? It's typically steeped in the pot, though, if you order it in a restaurant or something like that, they'll put like a sprig of mint in the cup for for looks. Okay. Morocco, of course, is a Muslim country. Is alcohol consumed in Morocco? 
It is available, and yes, there are there are Moroccans that drink it, though primarily the the alcohol is there for foreigners. But yeah, it's not a dry country, so there is beer, wine. We have wineries here, even which surprises people. But there's really? quite a few. They haven't. They're just kind of getting to the point where they're exporting it more and more. But um, they do we do do quite a bit um, of of wine now. Uh, yeah, so you can get it, but do be aware it is taxed fairly heavily. So. You will pay, um, you know, it is not cheap. What about sweets in Marrakesh? Mm -hmm. What can we expect for having little treats or desserts? Yeah, so unlike in the West where it's typical to have like a cake or a pie or something or ice cream or something like that as a dessert after your meal, um, in Morocco, the traditional thing to have after a meal is fruit. So fruit is considered the typical dessert. So you'll have lots of fruit that's available and it's always seasonal. We don't import a ton of produce. So um, what you eat is what's in season. Um, but you also will find patisseries, uh, pastry shops, and there are a lot of, of small, not quite bite-sized, maybe two-bite <laughs> cookies, I guess, depending on how big your mouth is. Um, but like, you know, two-bite cookies. Um, but they're also not overly sweet. So a typical filling would be like ground almonds with um, maybe some... Orange blossom water and uh, powdered sugar, um, but they're not overly sweet um, and they're not overly heavy. So you would have that more in the afternoon. It's it's typical to have like a coffee tea time, um, you know, sometime like five or six o'clock. Usually when kids get home from school or when people get home from work um, and you might have, you know, some of those cookies and maybe some sort of a, a cake. Again, their cakes aren't very dense or heavy or overly sweet. Um, but a piece of cake and a cup of coffee or a pot of tea, um, you know, at that time. What's your kid's favorite thing to have for a sweet treat? Oh, well, my kids are, you know, they're half American. So chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> <laughs> my, one of my sister-in-laws does make a really nice like chocolate cake, a yogurt chocolate cake. Um, that's pretty common here. And they like that, too. Let's talk about spices, because when I think of Moroccan cooking, one of the first things that comes to mind is all of the wonderful different spices and aromas. What role do spices play in Moroccan cuisine and what kind of spices would we have in some of the typical dishes? Spices play a huge role in Moroccan cuisine, um, but I think a misconception is that they're, that Moroccan food is spicy and it's not spicy. It has a lot of spices, um, but not a lot of heat. So, you know, a really when when I think of what spices I think of when I think of Moroccan food, cumin is number one. So you definitely have a lot of cumin. You'd have garlic. You'd have ginger, which is a bit surprising to people. Paprikas, um, white pepper, um, turmeric is another one that's used quite heavily. Um yeah, those are kind of the base flavors. Then there's another spice called rasul hanout, which which the literal translation is head of the shop. And this is a blend of spices. So every shop, every spice shop is going to have uh, variations on what theirs tastes like or smells like or, or what it is. And um, so you just kind of have to find the shop that you like with the blend that you like. Um, but it's fairly potent and it has, you know, it could have 12 spices. It could have 30 spices in it, just depending on just depending on the guy who's blending it. Um but it's quite potent. So you only need to use a very a little bit of this uh, to go a long way. So sometimes if you're making couscous, it's nice or it's nice kind of on vegetables and roasted with some olive oil. I like it that way. Um, or, yes, some people use it in tagines. Uh, it's 
kind of like if I don't know what I'm doing, then I'll just toss some Russell Hanoud in it. Would this spice blend be available in spice shops in the United States? I wonder because I've never I've never seen it, but I've also never been looking for it. Yeah, I think you can find it. I'm trying to think. I usually buy my spices from like Penzies in the U.S. Um, and I've not looked to see if they have Russell Hanout, but I know you can buy it on Amazon from um, from a couple different companies. Uh, I'm, the names are escaping me off the top of the head, but you can find it in some places. Yeah. Let's say, Amanda, we're going out for a big fancy meal in Marrakesh. Where mm-hmm. would you send us to go to get this fancy splurge meal? Sure. So for I have a really hard time with splurge meals in Moroccan food because I feel like it's not one of those cuisines that's like splurge worthy. Like I feel like... <laughs> I I just feel like eating it in a corner shop with a guy is going to be just as tasty. But if you really wanted like an over the top experience, um, the Royal Mansour uh, has one of the best kitchens. Also, I like Darmoha because they do a kind of uh, not fusion, but a more like modern Moroccan thing. So some of the things on the menu are not they're traditional, but they've got a twist to them. Um, so I like that. And also um, the uh, Moroccan restaurant at the Mandarin Oriental does really nice, good quality. Even my mother-in-law, who is incredibly picky, she likes their food. So okay. that's a good sign. There, if you get the thumbs up from the mother-in-law, you know you right. got quality, right? What more do you need? <laughs> mother-in-law needs to be happy at all times. Absolutely. Um, so what what kinds of people are you seeing on your tours, Amanda? Are they mostly Americans? Uh, do you see expats? Do you see Europeans? Who's coming to Marrakesh right now? Anyone, really. We thought when we started that it would be a lot of Americans. But what we found is that if they speak, because we only offer our tours in English, we really wanted to reach the English speaking market. So really, anybody that speaks English and you see, um, well, what we see is that depending on the time of the year, it's people from different places. Like in this, in the winter time, we might see more Scandinavians and um, Australians and South Africans. Whereas in the summer, um, or, you know, late spring, summer, maybe more Americans, Canadians. Um, so it just really kind of depends on the time of the year, though. Uh, you know, we're seeing people from all over. I think last year when I ran to see just because I was curious where people were coming from, it was like 57 different countries that we had had on our tours. Wow. Yeah, which kind of shocked me. If yeah. someone wants to uh, book a tour with you, Amanda, how should they go about uh, getting on a Marrakesh food tour tour? Sure. So our website is marrakeshfoodtours.com, easy enough to find, um, and on all social media, that too. And on our website, we have a calendar that has all of our um, latest availability. And if by chance you get on there and you don't see the dates you're looking for, you know, reach out and email us and let us know because sometimes we can open extra dates. But if you're thinking of coming, we do suggest booking in advance because we do book up um, we do book up several weeks in advance, usually. Amanda Mutaki, thank you for being with us on Destination Eat Drink. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I've never been to Marrakesh. Now I feel like it's a requirement that it goes to the top of the list. I hope you do. Thank you so much for having me. Not only was it great talking to Amanda about Marrakesh, but I think she's invented a great new travel phrase, splurge-worthy. That's going to be the bar that's set for every restaurant or activity that I do from now on. 
Is it splurge worthy? Remember to check out DestinationEatDrink.com regularly. I've just updated the site with three new destinations, including Lisbon and Porto in Portugal, as well as Dublin, Ireland. I got to do an episode of the podcast on Dublin. Someone remind me to get on that right away. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>